pray. Lord, uh, this morning, uh, the people at Cross Point want to lift up another ch- local church. We want to lift up Lone Oak Baptist Church. Lord, I want to pray for Robert Cook and his family. I want to pray for his marriage, Lord. I want to pray that it is uh, one where husband and wife are truly enjoying each other and uh, where a husband is giving himself up for his wife daily and where his wife is looking to him for leadership and um, she is supporting him in his ministry, in their ministry. And uh, Lord, I want to pray that for Robert that he has been wrecked by the word this week. I pray that he feels completely inadequate and insufficient at this very moment as he's beginning to preach. And I pray that in that inadequacy and in that insufficiency that you will bring a word that will change a people. Lord, we pray that that people will be gripped by the truths of the gospel and they will be overwhelmed with, the, uh, with just how low grace had to reach. And that from that perspective that they will truly savor Christ. I pray the same for us this morning, Lord, that I pray that you will guard us from being people that are just attending, that you'll guard us from people that are getting a check in the block. Lord, I pray by grace that you will create in us a people that are here to dine this morning and not just to listen to um, truths in an academic sense, but to truly consume them and um, take them in to where they impact and change tomorrow. Lord, I know that that's a work of grace. I feel especially responsible for that this morning, and I confess that. And I pray that you will forgive me for feeling like it's up to me. I acknowledge with this body that that's a work of the Spirit, and we beg for Him to move hearts this morning. Lord, I pray in the next few minutes that we can appreciate what exactly happened in the death of Christ as we dig deeper and climb deeper into that canyon of truth about the atonement. Lord, also this morning, corporately, we want to lift up Keith McCord and his family. I pray for his uh, treatment, Lord. I pray for his health. We beg together for a complete healing. And um, I pray for Stephanie right now that you'll give her just a, a divine endurance. And I pray for Keith right now um, that you'll give him a divine trust. It doesn't come from himself. Uh, it comes from just knowing you and walking with you. Lord, we beg for a healing, and in the same breath, we beg for your will to be done. We beg for you to be glorified in and through that situation. We love you so much, Lord. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Keith has a um, uh, some scans going on this week on Tuesday and uh, and then later on in the week and uh, more scans so just pray for a good report there and pray for that family John 11 beginning in verse 44 the man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with a cloth and Jesus said to them unbind him and let him go Christ has just raised a man named Lazarus from death to life a man's been dead four days Jesus let him die so that he could be glorified through that. And he calls him forth from death to life, a beautiful, wonderful picture of our situation and our condition apart from Christ, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We stinketh. 
We occupy a tomb, hopeless and helpless and unable to do anything about our situation. But the effectual call of Christ calls past the obstacle that nothing else can penetrate, death. The effectual call of Christ can call even past death. He calls Lazarus forth from death to life in verse 45. Therefore, because he called Lazarus forth from death to life, many of the Jews who came to Mary saw what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, because Christ called a man from death to life, and because many of the Jews were believing in him, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man's performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative. John goes off to comment, goes ahead and comments on what Caiaphas has said. Caiaphas unknowingly was speaking the truth. He's ignorant to that, but he's speaking a deep spiritual truth that will have an impact even on us here 2,000 years later. John comments on the ignorance and the reality in both this next, these next few statements. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. The children of God who are scattered abroad are scattered over space and time. He's not just speaking in a geographic sense that they're scattered. He's speaking also in a time sense. He's speaking of us. Caiaphas, unbeknownst to him, unknowingly, was speaking the truth about us. That's where this thing becomes personal, and that's where we can climb in to this passage. Turn to the book of Leviticus. What we've done these last couple of weeks is we've considered this truthful um, thing spoken by Caiaphas, although spoken in ignorance, it was, he was speaking the truth. We've considered that through the lens of Leviticus. This last week, we considered the nature of that sacrifice. We considered the words of Caiaphas, and we considered through the lens of of Leviticus, that in order for the holy to dwell with the unholy, this is the message of Leviticus. The end of Exodus, the book before Leviticus, leaves with God dwelling and inhabiting the, the tabernacle. And then the book of Leviticus is a book about how God is going to continue to dwell with an unholy people. How a holy God can inhabit the same geographic area as an unholy, unclean people. And what we figured out last time, that the nature of that sacrifice, for that to happen, Something is going to die. The only way that an unholy people can live with a holy God is that that holiness, that unholiness must be converted to holiness and it must be purchased. And it is purchased with blood. What we considered last week is that that was, that describes the work of Christ. That he purchased access for an unholy people, you and me, to a holy God by the finished work of Christ. So the nature of sacrifice is his death. Nothing short of that. He didn't come with bags full of money. He came ready and prepared to die. 
Last week was about the nature of the sacrifice. This week will be about the nature of the death. We're going to climb into this canyon of truth and try and understand exactly what Christ did, what it achieved, and the character and nature of that sacrifice and death. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Remember, God is dwelling among an unholy people. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd of the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of that creature. He shall lay his head, his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall lay his hand on the head of that creature as a representative of an animal that's making an atonement on his, the worshiper's, behalf. Atonement means to make amends. It means make, to repara- make reparation, to make reconciliation with a holy God. The only way that the unholy can dwell with the holy is that something is going to die. And this image of the offerer, the worshiper, laying his hand on that creature is saying, this is the one that will die in my place. And what I'm doing with my hand is I am placing my guilt on this innocent, unblemished creature. In case you didn't get that, let's look at chapter 3, verse 2. The worshiper, the offerer, shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and slay it at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Verse 8, and he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and slay it before the tent of meeting. Verse 13, and he shall lay his hand on his head and slay it before the tent of meeting. Verse, chapter 4, verse 4, he shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. Verse 15. This is in case the whole congregation of Israel sins against the Lord. Then the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be slain before the Lord. Verse 24. He shall lay his hand on the head of the male goat and slay it in the place where they slay the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Verse 29. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. Verse 33, he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slay it for a sin offering in the place where they slay the burnt offering. A couple chapters later, verse or chapter 8 is a chapter where Aaron and his sons are ordained, essentially. They're consecrated as priests for the nation of Israel. Verse 14, then he brought the bull. This is Moses bringing the bull of the sin offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. Verse 22, Then he presented the second ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and Moses slaughtered it. Look over to chapter 16. Chapter 16 explains, really, what takes place when the offerer and the worshiper lays his hands on that unblemished innocent. Chapter 16 describes the Day of Atonement. 
It was a day each year that God said, set this day aside as a day where the high priest will make an offering. The high priest will have two goats brought to him, and he will cast lots for what will happen to each goat. The first goat will be a goat for the Lord, and that goat will be escorted into the tabernacle and will be slain. And the the blood from that goat will be placed on the mercy seat. And that's where the high priest penetrates the Holy of Holies with the blood of another. And then he goes out of the tabernacle back to the entrance. And here's where we pick up in verse 20 of chapter 16. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall offer the live goat. That's this goat we're talking about next. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it. Just imagine this imagery. Imagine being an Israelite, a day a year, where the high priest does this. You see this goat, this unblemished creature, this innocent, with the high priest laying his hands on that animal. And he confesses over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. Here's what happens when that happens. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. Imagine being an Israelite and watching that goat being led away from the camp as the sin of the people is being taken away from the camp on the head of an unblemished innocent. As the Israelite worshiper took the best of his flock, or maybe as the Israelite worshiper went and bought the best of another's flock because they may not have been a shepherd, or they may not have been a cattle owner, as they took that bull, lamb, or goat, and they placed their hand on the head of that animal, after they led that animal to the tabernacle, who knows how far they lived from the tabernacle or the temple, and they're leading that animal, hearing the bleeding of that animal, feeling the hair on that animal as it bumped into their legs, touching that animal and hearing the very life of that animal on the way to the tabernacle. And then when they placed their hand on that animal, on the head of that animal, and as they cut his throat, something must have happened to the worshiper. Something must have happened to the Israelite as he heard his bleat and then he heard the sound of the knife cutting through his throat and the gush of blood and the sudden abrupt stop of the bleeding as the lifeblood of that animal was poured out and then as he walked back home by himself and he thought on the way here I was hearing a bleat. And on the way back, I hear that sound no more. I hear silence. And I look back at a tabernacle and I see smoke vacating the tabernacle. And I realize that that creature that I brought is being sublimated into a gas that is entering the very nostrils of God. As that Israelite went through that, he would have had a true sense as he walked home in that silence. That should have been me. That creature took my place. 
as the burnt offering or the grain offering. If you remember this from last week, some of the characteristics of the burnt offering and grain offering is they were completely consumed on the altar, completely sublimated into a gas. As the offerer considered that substance, whether it was an animal or whether it was a grain that's completely consumed on the altar, that worshiper was reminded that it was the offering that was transformed into gas in his place. He would have said, that should have been me. He would have understood that he, by grace, was reckoned cleansed by the blood and the sacrifice of another. The high priest placed the sins of the whole nation on the scapegoat. And as that animal left the camp, a people would have thought together that should be me. God gave the nation of Israel a 1,500-year lesson on His grace in this word. This is what this morning's message is about. In substitution. His grace offered in providing for a substitute. We could miss the grace of substitution because we never heard the bleat because we never touched the hair of the animal, because we never placed the hand on his head, because we never sliced and cut the throat and heard the gush of blood coming out of a live creature, and because we never saw the smoke, we could miss what they would have gotten, that that should have been me. Now, Go back to John chapter 11. These last couple of weeks and this week we are looking, as I've said before, through the lens of Leviticus at this passage in John chapter 11. We're trying to understand it more than we do. If we just stayed in John 11, we would miss some stuff. Imagine what it would be like for the Israelite whose family had spent 1,500 years. His heritage, his legacy of sacrifice where he understood the concept that that sacrifice should have been me when they heard these words. Listen to them again. John chapter 11, starting in verse 50. Actually, the the verse before, at the end of it, verse 49. You know nothing at all, Caiaphas is speaking. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people. We've kind of been breaking that passage down over the last few weeks, almost word by word. And really what we're looking at today is the word for. The word for in the original language is the word hooper. And that means on behalf of. I'm going to read it again. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die on behalf of the people. And that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die on behalf of Hooper, the nation. And not Hooper, not on behalf of the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. The people the nation, and the children of God scattered over space and time, you and me benefited from that little word for. Without that word, we're done. 
Without that word, we have no relationship with the living God. That simple little word, hooper, for, on behalf of. Christ was and is our substitute. Turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. We're going to look at three passages. This is the first of three. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for Hooper on behalf of us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Next to the law, we are left bankrupt and cursed. We are doomed next to the law. If you spend any time with the Ten Commandments, getting to know those, and if you realize that if you sin in one part of the law, you've transgressed all the law, then you realize that we are bankrupt, hopeless and helpless, and essentially we are cursed, condemned to die. But Christ became a curse on behalf of us. It should have been me. But he became a curse in my place on the altar of the cross. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for Hooper on behalf of all, the testimony given at the proper time. Christ made restitution by making the payment, the ransom, and actually being the payment for our life, essentially taking our place on dying on behalf of all believers on the altar of the cross. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Verse 45. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for, in this case, I'm going to introduce a new word in Greek. It's the word anti, many. If the word hooper means on behalf of, the word anti means in the place of. The first one was on behalf of. You could almost imagine that being like a, um, a lawyer that represents someone. You appreciate a good representative if you've got to go to court. But the reality is, at the end of the day, whether you're guilty or not, that lawyer goes home. He gets in his BMW and drives home. Maybe putting a caricature on lawyers there, but he leaves. So representation is a good thing, but here we're seeing something even beyond representation. We're seeing replacement. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for, in the place of, many. He came with a purpose. 
to ransom his people from slavery to sin on the altar of the cross. These passages, these, just these last few are just a few of many that help us flesh out an understanding of this word substitution and this picture of Christ dying in our place. Between the word hooper on behalf of and the word anti in the place of, Christ becomes our substitute. He died on behalf of, in the place of, and for the sake of the worshiper, the one who claims Christ as Savior and Lord. So in essence, here's the thing that's blown me away as I've considered this imagery. In essence, the Christ that created all things, the Father spoke and the Word went into action and Christ created all things, the Christ that hung the stars, the Christ that scooped the oceans and piled up the mountains, that Christ essentially got down on his knees and he bent over and let me place my hand on his head and let me offer him in my place as a substitute. And if you walk with Christ by faith, then you've done the same thing. I've had a tough time getting my head and heart around that imagery. I could probably spend that. In fact, I will spend the rest of my life, this side of eternity and the rest of eternity, appreciating the grace demonstrated, the humility, the love demonstrated in that sacrifice. Something I've been trying to do these last few weeks is I've been trying to, I've been begging the Lord, Lord, give me an illustration. Give me something that helps me understand this, not only so I can understand it, but so I can also communicate it to your people. Here's where he's left me. He's left me with an image of being on death row. We've seen enough movies or we've read enough newspaper articles. If you can imagine what death row would be like, it's a pretty appropriate illustration for us to imagine ourselves on death row. If we consider what we learned last week, that for the holy to dwell with the unholy, something's going to die. And in the absence of a substitute, that something is me. I can appreciate that, yes, I sit, in fact, on death row. Now, I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine what life would be like on death row. You live your life day by day in a nine by nine cell. You see the same guards at the same times every day. You hear the same noises of locks opening and closing all day long. You hear the same voices and speaking over loudspeakers every single day. You wear the same clothes or some that at least look the same every single day with your number and your name on it day after day day and the worst thing in the world is to have some terrible event in front of you coming up and then have gobs of time in front of it to worry about it to have some difficult task coming up in front of you and then to have gobs of time where you're sitting around doing nothing and all you can do is worry about is exactly what happens on death row they're bathing in nothing but time and then as you're bathing in that time every now and again one of your neighbors will be led out of their cell and a few minutes later the lights flicker and you hear some funny noises and then that neighbor doesn't come back to their cell and then you're reminded, that's going to be me. Imagine what life would be like on death row. That would be a horrible existence. Eight years, 11 months, and 19 days. That's how much time Kirk Bloodsworth spent in Maryland prisons. 
including two years on death row. A former Marine with no prior record, Bloodsworth was convicted in 1985 of murder. But in 1993, Bloodsworth became the first person in the U.S. to have a capital conviction overturned by DNA evidence. Free at last, he exclaimed upon his release in 1993. He had envisioned what life as a free man would be like, and then reality gradually set in. Here's some of the quotes that we get from Kirk Bloodsworth as he vacated his death row prison cell. It'll be neat at first. You're going to have everything you want. You know, the world is your oyster. However, there's no pearl in that thing. Quite a sage, Kirk was. You've got to find that yourself, and it's going to take time, Bloodsworth says. I can remember when I first got out rolling a quarter in my fingers. It was so new to me. It was almost like I had never had one in my hands before, he adds. The state of Maryland awarded... Kirk $300,000, but legal bills and bad investments left him broke within six months. I thought of some of the character of Kirk's days after he vacated a prison cell for nine years, two of those being on death row, his exclamation, free at last, and then his thoughts about rolling a quarter, and then his concept of you'll have everything you want. In reality, he'll probably want everything he's got but it's going to be good. Life is going to be great. And then, of course, blowing 300 grand. I wouldn't expect cautious living from a guy that had come so close to death. How much would you appreciate a good meal if you were Kirk? How much would you appreciate a sunrise or a sunset? How much would you appreciate time with a loved one, a conversation with your wife or your husband? Are your kids? How much would you cherish each free day and despise the memory of your old life? What wonderful implications this concept, this mindset would have for us if we but considered that we were on death row, but now we're off the hook. Would that change the way we treated Sunday mornings? Would we sleep through a morning message on a Sunday morning? Or would we be serious about what's taking place and what's being spoken on Sunday morning straight from the words of the living God? Would it matter? That alone, just being freed and off the hook from death row is cause for joy and urgent living. The mindset, just the, the words on your lips being a constant phrase, we're free at last. How would that impact the way you lived if you appreciated that you were on death row? Real life began for us the moment that we were called from death to life. And we were called out of our death row cell. Life on the other side of death row for Kurt could be rich. Life on the other side of spiritual death row for us is even richer. Now, let's make this image even more suitable to our case. Thankfully, I couldn't find, when I was doing research on free death row inmates, I didn't find any overt representations of someone who was guilty and freed, thankfully. But now let's raise the bar on this image. Let's make this image more practical and more appropriate for us. Imagine that you're scheduled to die in the chair, not being falsely accused like Kirk but in fact being dreadfully guilty. Imagine that you've committed a crime that rated death 
Last week we looked in Ezekiel and we found two passages. One said, the soul that sins dies. The other one said, in case you missed it, the person that sins dies. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. If we can appreciate that we're on death row, we've committed a crime and that crime being sin, any sin, name it. The consequences before true holiness is death. If we can climb into that cell and appreciate that we are doomed for death and we deserve it, we are hopeless and helpless like Ephesians chapter 2 says, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. That's us. I own that. But somehow, we're released from our prison cell. Somehow, we're released. We don't know why. We're given a new suit. It might be a couple sizes too big. We're given a couple hundred dollars to put in our pocket and a cab ride to the big city of Rockwall. One day, you're counting the hours until the chair, watching the lights flicker when your neighbors are zapped. And then the next day, you're enjoying a good steak at Saltgrass all the while being completely guilty and knowing it. Can you imagine the contrast between the condemnation to die that you so deserve and then the complete freedom? Here's your new suit. Would you care that it's a couple sizes too big? Would you enjoy that steak, that salt grass? Is that thought scandalous to you? That a guilty person that is due for death row is set free and is then enjoying a steak at salt grass? Is that scandalous? That illustration is more in line with our situation. And now let's really make this, ro- this illustration robust with the full picture. The illustration so far hasn't been quite complete. Imagine that you've spent nine years in prison, two years on death row. And imagine that you, unlike Kirk, are truly guilty, fully deserving the electric chair. You're released and set free with a new set of clothes and a couple hundred dollars spending money and a clean record and a cab ride to Saltgrass. But before you're released, you find out that your release was not due to some legal loophole. Your release was due to the purchase of another. And that that purchase was not with money, but that that person, someone, actually took your place in the cell and then walked down the hall to the chamber and sat in your chair. Will that change the way that you love and live? Will that change the way you enjoy a steak or a conversation with your bride? Will that make today earnest and serious to realize that someone took your place? Not only were you freed, but you were guilty and freed. And not only were you guilty and freed, but you were guilty and freed because someone took your place. Someone was substituted in the place that you deserved. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for Hooper on behalf of us. While we yet occupied a death row cell and we deserved it, Christ died for, in the place of, on behalf of us. Man, that's scandalous. Your release 
from spiritual death row wasn't due to the work of a great lawyer who represented you and found a cool loophole. It was achieved by the God-man who replaced you by submitting to our cross, by sitting in our chair. What a wonderful, scandalous story this gospel is. The only true innocent manned our chair in our place, and that changes everything. When now I see the contours of my hand on his graceful head, then I find a reason for zealous, sacrificial, crazy living for Christ. How much would your freedom mean to you now, understanding that picture? How much would a good meal mean to you now? How urgent would you be about the things that mattered if you appreciated that your substitute, Christ, took your place that you so seriously, truly, gravely deserved? Would you savor life? Would you be about the things that matter? Would you cherish the one that took your place? Imagine, climb into that imagery. Imagine spending nine years in prison and someone takes your place and sits in your chair. Would you want to know everything about that guy? Whatever mattered to that guy would now matter to you. That would be the resource for living and loving for Christ. Is recognizing that he took your place. That substitution changes everything. If his pursuit was to make disciples, your pursuit would be to make disciples. And not just pay lip service either. Not just nod about it on a Sunday morning message that has to do with discipleship and say amen. But you go get you one. Because it mattered to him. And he died in your place and what mattered to him matters now to you. And you're not going to tarry on it. It matters to you. You would represent him to everyone you knew. Let me tell you about my substitute. Let me tell you about me, man. I was due for death row. That's what I rated. Yet someone else took my place. Let me tell you his story. I was guilty and had an appointment with death, but another took my place willingly, and that should be me. He became my substitute, and life will never be the same. Lord, I pray that you will do something with um, um, with this, and I pray that you will speak to hearts. I pray that you will grip us with the reality that our substitute was no less than your son. I pray that it will change the way that we live and love. I pray that it will give us an uh, urgency about knowing that substitute more, about reading about him and singing about his, his work, understanding his work more. Lord, I pray that it would give us an urgency for engaging his bride, the, thing that the, the people that he came and died for. Lord, I pray that understanding that our substitute was Christ, no less than Christ, and that we placed our hand on his head will completely change the way that we live and love. That we'll find that as our resource for living and loving and not just our model. 
Lord, I pray that you'll do something with this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.